Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest this week is an author, broadcaster and eminent historian, Dr. David Starkey. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello. Uh, Both of you. Thank <laughs> you very much. All our guests. So trigonometry is the three of us. I, yes, get, I, get, exactly. I get it. But get mostly it. you. Mostly uh, We me. are going to most. count on so, you. So I'm at the top of the hypotenuse. Exactly. <laughs> and doing most of the triggering. Uh, you, you, we normally like to get our guests to introduce themselves, but you're someone who needs very little introduction. So why don't we just crack on with it? Uh, we're delighted to have you on the show because I think the historical perspective, and we talked about this before we started, is fascinating because we have such short memories nowadays. And I think it's very tempting. If memory at all. If memory at all, exactly. <laughs> Nematode world. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> and so many things that are happening in society now, the trends, whether it's woke culture, whether all of these things, it's very tempting, I think, for us, particularly younger people, to assume that this none of this has ever happened before. This excessive introspection, this navel-gazing obsession with ourselves and with individualism. Uh, but give us a historical perspective. As a historian looking at modern society, what do you see and what do you think back to in history uh, when you look at what's happening? Can now? I do a little plug? Oh, uh, on, my, on my way in here, I was reading the proof for my latest article for this brilliant new magazine, of which I am a columnist, uh, The Critic. And it's looking centrally at this extraordinary man, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm. Uh, and if we want a single source of why we are completely fucked up, <laughs> it is, it is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Yes. Uh, inevitably, of course, he's French, or at least. And every bad idea is French um, because they take the subject of ideas and reason so seriously and they, as it were, tear it from the roots of experience and good sense and general Anglo-Saxon ploddery, which <laughs> we are so very good at on this side. Um, and Rousseau, I think, is the beginning of virtually uh, the list of nouns that you gave, the introspection, the profound sense of solipsism, of self, the um, absurd belief in our own absolute importance, and that the thing that matters most of all is what I think. <laughs> um, I mean, the whole origin of Dianification. Do you remember this ancient figure, Princess Diana? We're all probably too young. All of that is pure, pure Rousseau. But what I think we've got to understand, your introduction was really interesting about history. Um, what I think strikes me, and again, I've been writing about this in the context of politics, is, and it's from point of view of when I was taught, you know, and I was a young man, um, roughly at the time of Noah's Ark, um, <laughs> um, we were taught uh, very definitely that uh, history is then and we're now, and the drawing of the parallels between the two of them is dangerous and whatever. But as I've got older, and I think it's partly, you, you, you come to have a history yourself. Mm. So you become very, very aware of your own change, the changes in your own times, uh, your physical aches and pains and all this kind of thing. But what I can now see is the extent of patterns and the repetition of patterns. And what I think we can do if we put Rousseau in, let's put Rousseau in context. Um, he is the immediate run-up to the French Revolution. 
And if we look at the French Revolution, uh, although you remember there's a famous, I suppose, remark of Chow en Lai when he was asked, um, uh, had the French Revolution been a good thing or a bad thing? And he supposedly responded, it was too soon to yeah. judge. <laughs> yeah. I think he's wrong uh, because <laughs> we could see immediately the French Revolution was an exceedingly bad thing from which France has never recovered. What was it? It's the beginning of our modern politics. The split between, if you like, the liberal and the conservative is the direct product of the French Revolution. Because what the French Revolution does, led above all uh, by Rousseau, though he's not the only one, he's got sort of partners in arms and people like Voltaire, although of course they hated each other, the left always hate each other. Mm -hmm. you, know. uh, you can just look at the Guardian at the moment and you get the idea, of the, or the Labour Party, the <laughs> idea of the bear pit it is. Um, what, be, what they begin by doing is deciding, a bit like Tony Blair in the second or third stage of this process, that history was a mistake, a bad thing. We needed to start from scratch. And what the French Revolution tries to do is to invent society, human relations, the world from scratch, starting now, at this particular moment. And we will simply rethink everything. And I mean, we tried uh, it in Russia a couple of centuries well, later. You, yeah. you did exactly the same <laughs> with even, even worse, even outcomes, worse yeah. consequences. Yeah. Starkey's rule of revolutions is very simple. All they do is reproduce the worst features of the Ancien Regime. So you've just got a particularly unpleasant... You've had a succession of deeply unpleasant czars. You know? mm -hmm. uh, China is run by a mad emperor. China's always run by mad emperors. And the Communist Party has just replaced the Mandarinate. But the, 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 the French Revolution... The French Revolution is the, is the key start of this process. I mean, are you aware, for example, it's not just that they tried to change politics. You can understand, if you look at Ancien Regime France, you know, why you want serious political change. Do you know they tried try to change the calendar? that they decide, we all know, they invent the metric system. Well, sort of sensible, except it's been made completely redundant by computers, <laughs> which is why the Americans still use feet and inches. Um, um, but they decide not simply to have 10 for measuring or 10 for quantities. They decide there shall be 10 hours in the day, 10 days in the week, 10 months in the year. Everything is given the new name. They decide that every geographical area in France shall be obliterated and you shall cover France with a network of neat squares, each one of which is roughly the same size. So you simply tear the world apart. You reconceive human relations. You abandon religion. Uh, you uh, celebrate the worship of pure reason and you finish up uh, with one of the great moments of blasphemy in human history where you have an actress who is no better than she should be, as my mother would have said from the Comédie Française enacting the part of the goddess of reason barely clad on the high altar of Notre Dame. You know, the world goes completely mad and it goes up its own bottom and the revolutionaries tear themselves apart. Now, what does that sound like? Twitter. <laughs> Twitter? It sounds like Twitter, but it sounds like something else. It sounds like what's going on on the far left now. Mm. Have you just noticed this moment in which that ghastly woman, Suzanne Moore, you know, the one who wears a kind of Chinese uh, sort of shark's fin soup as, <laughs> as, as hair, um, uh, has been ostracized for saying that women are 
being a woman is a biological fact. So the entire, and you know, 333 people, well, who would have thought that The Guardian had 333 people working for it? <laughs> and I thought that was bigger than its readership. Yeah. You know? and this is what you, this is, you know, the, the only reason The Guardian can do what it does is that it doesn't matter if it doesn't sell a single paper. It's run exquisitely by an offshore trust, you know. I'm, Tax-free offshore trust. How progressive. Um, I mean, how deep. You can only be progressive if you're rich. You know. uh, it's, it's the corporate equivalent of a trustafarian. Anyway, but it's disappearing up its own bottom. or Because it's not a bottom, of course. Uh, that would be if it were gay rights, one imagines. It's, it's, it because it's trans rights, I presumably. You know, it's a cul-de-sac vagina. Uh, and, and the left is just going up itself. But it does it, every, it, does it as a cycle. And it's really striking. So you have that first cycle of liberalism in the 1790s. Then you've got a second one in the 1840s uh, with here in Britain, which is the, the, the second great revolution, which is the Industrial Revolution, which again dissolves human relations in exactly the same way. I mean, come on, you two, have you read, have you read Marx's Communist Manifesto? Oh, believe me, I have. <laughs> yeah. You have, right. Tell me the great bit in which he says what the bourgeois do. What, what does the new bourgeois sensibility do? I feel like I'm in a history yeah. tutorial yeah. 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 university think of me and I haven't a, done think, the preparations. Think, think of me as a cage Come on, you would remember. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly, I'm more scared than I have. Some means, you know, sort of a rat torturer waiting for you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what the question what, is: What what what, did, what does Marx in the Communist Manifesto say the bourgeoisie do? The, well, the, they the, take the, advantage of of the working class. Yeah, but there's a, there's a much there's a wonderful passage in which he describes them tearing off the draperies that have made life acceptable, the the relation, the holiness of the church, the dignity of chivalry that they strip everything of uh, of of tradition of respect of value in other words it's a new way of starting the world from scratch and that of course creates our modern politics in britain it's from the outcome of that that you get the, the liberal party on the one hand and the conservative party on the other so and then you're know, globalization and the increased madness of the left is the third wave of that. So we're just going through this sequence of waves, and they all end the same way. They all go up themselves. Do, do you think we're in quite a dangerous place, David? Because we don't have a coherent opposition to our present government. And isn't that quite a dangerous thing for societies? I don't think the government, in that sense, much matters in this story at the moment. I mean, we're in a very strange position that you've got, on the one hand, uh, in terms of the formal political process, as you say, you've got a government that in one sense just occupies the field. Mm. Um, you've got a useless opposition, worse than useless opposition. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you've got, so there's a, there's a dominance of a supposed conservatism. It's a very funny sort of conservatism that's just spent about a trillion pounds without thinking about it. <laughs> you know? um, but never mind, it calls itself conservative. But then if you look at virtually every other important institution, 
institution uh, from the BBC mm-hmm. to most of the press to the universities, you get a very, very different picture, which is the dominance to a large extent of this insane woke culture, which is there, of course, not necessarily because people believe it, some do, but above all because of uh, corporate vanity and indulgence. I mean, the reason in my own University of Cambridge um, is overrun with this sort of stuff is you have an absolutely useless vice chancellor. Needless to say, he's Canadian. There's a kind of iron rule uh, uh, that, that on the whole, that when Canadians run How much time does he spend in yeah, blackface? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That, 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 that's right. But Stephen Toop, so appropriately named, Stoop, you know, uh, has only got to see a woke cause to prostrate himself before mm. it. And you see this with CEOs and whatever. And, you know, you just, I mean, the Guardian incident is a fascinating mm. one. One employee who apparently is trans, who has already resigned mm. um, once, then t- writes to the Guardian to say that because of Suzanne Moore's wicked column in stating that on the whole women tend not to have beards and penises um, and occasionally to menstruate, uh, that he felt, you know, he or she or z uh, felt <laughs> oppressed and therefore threatened to, uh, threatened to resign. Then immediately 333 people come along as well. So there is this, there is this peculiar, we've got a world in which there is no opposition to the left culturally yeah. and there's no opposition to the right politically. politically. Mm. And the two groups just continue walking past each other. It's completely extraordinary. But with the, with this uh, woke mentality and the fact that, as you say, even though the, the far left is not in power, they have power. Well, they're in social... Sorry, there are different forms yeah, of exactly, power. Exactly. There are different That's forms what I of power. And uh, again, you know, the power of... If, if, if you look at, at, at the, uh, uh, the various forms of cultural Marxism, uh, the, the argument was always controlling Education, you know, going back to the Jesuit, give me, give me the child for six years, and I've got them for life. The argument, well, education is outside the public schools, and to an extent, even in those, is controlled by these values. And again, what is really, really striking, both of you, is the origin. Where does child-centered learning? Oh, it's Rousseau. I mean, it's Catherine Verbal saying yeah. it's Rousseau. Yeah. Um, it is just extraordinary. Um, again, the the you know our politics driven by uh, celebrity. I better shut up because I suppose I'm on in a minor way. Um, but our politics, our culture driven by celebrity. Rousseau is one of the first celebrities. Mm. Rousseau pioneers in the Confession. I mean, he pioneers the tell-all. You know, he's a Kardashian and whatever. I mean. Uh, you know the, the 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 revelation of all you know one's I mean, not not simply washing one's dirty wear underwear in public, but actually soiling it and, you know, and, 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 and holding it up for admiration. So he's there. He's at the heart of all of this stuff. But let me ask you this question, David, because as uh, you know, it's a, it's an apt metaphor for the current moment. As we know, with a virus, you. W- are likely to catch it if it's around, but your immune system has to be compromised somewhat to be susceptible to it. So what is it about the cultural moment that we're in? And again, the historical perspective here is interesting because, again, it's not the first time that it's a civilization has been tempted to disappear up its own bottom, as you say. Uh, what is it about the cultural moment now that, as a society, we seem to be susceptible to some of these far-left ideas. How is it that we've come to a place where 
outrageously ridiculous concepts seem to be just regurgitated on the BBC without any question. Without any, without it, it's a very good question. Um, I think that uh, the 20th century was right from the beginning. If you go back to the First World War, uh, the uh, whole beginning of modernism in art, of Dada and whatever, it was a kind of spitting in the face of the past. It was intended to be <clears throat> you know, the belief that, that the First World War represented the death of an old wicked world uh, and, and, and you, you, know, you spat on it something even nastier uh, upon it, which is what Dada and all the rest of it was about. And that has run as a general theme through the 20th century, through the anti-art, the brutality in architecture, uh, the, uh, 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 and uh, again, the way in which the 60s consciously revive that immediate atmosphere of the early twenty of the, the late First World War, uh, the early nineteen twenties. Uh, so, so you know, you get Warhol rediscovering Dada, uh, the uh, liberation of the sixties, the liberation movements of the sixties, consciously picking up from again the Russian that immediate post-revolutionary period in Russia. It's, it's picking up. And, and you, you, you have this, it's, again, it's this cycle of liberalism. Um, the 60s, I'm notoriously gay. Of course, much that was attacked needed attacking. Mm. Much, that ne that much that needed changing was changed. But once you start that ball rolling, that everything's got to be changed, that the past has got to be discarded, that all that matters is the individual, all that matters are my feelings, all that matters is what I feel is right, all that matters is that I feel hurt. Do you see what I mean? It, it, it just... It just rolls and rolls and rolls. And we can get away your question. I'm thinking, thinking my, talking my way to an answer, as I often do. I think one of the reasons we can do this and get away with it is, of course, in every other way, our lives are better, securer, less threatened than we've ever been. If you had a civilization where people had to work harder, where there were deeper... I don't mean what we call work nowadays, you know. Oh, I've been... I've been I've been hours in the office. Look at what you've actually done. Twiddle, twiddle, <laughs> slurp, 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 gabble, gabble, gabble. Yeah. Uh, think of what the backbreaking labour of a peasant or a coal miner was. Um, so we've got a society which protects and indulges. It's a society because we lead such safe lives that we can get ourselves, you know, dare I say it, into the current hysteria that we are about the coronavirus, in which, can I gently say, at the moment of speaking, 10 people out of a population of 65 million in Britain have died. 10 people. I have to and say, by the time this recording goes out, I, those maybe, figures can, well, it, we could well, all be well, dead. Then, no, well, then, well I, 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 <laughs> yeah. the one thing that is pretty clear, uh, Constantine, is that this is not the bubonic plague. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. really isn't. The bubonic plague was real, you know. A third of a pop If you look in England at the, at the onset of the plague in the 14th century, roughly a third of the population die at the first blow. Mm. And then it rolls on and on and on. And by the, you know, by, the, by, by, by the end of the 14th century, the population of England has halved. Yeah. And it takes centuries. Well, we're not seeing that. And do you think that that's 
what we're seeing, the self-indulgence, the concentration on their feelings, don't you think that's very dangerous for a society? Of course. Because it shows that there's a, a lack of moral, a sort of lack of character, a lack of fiber. Oh, what old fashioned was it? <laughs> oh, 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 you make me feel so young and radical. I, I, I haven't felt I haven't so young. That's <laughs> in the, your values are from the 1920s. I mean, come on, man, sit up, <laughs> sit up straight. Get rid of those tattoos. Get a, find a tie from somewhere. But you see, isn't it interesting play, playing the... Of course you're right, but we can get away with it for the moment mm. because virtually every other Western society is the same. But of course, over there... There are societies that are not. That ain't true in Iran. That is not true in China. And who knows? I mean, we are, it's very, very easy. And, and again, you know, as Constantin made the point, civilizations disappear. Mm. Um, and we were talking you know, before we went on air about that extraordinary moment of the late 18th century, um, which again, of course, is, is Rousseau and whatever. One of the very, very great figures of that period is Edward Gibbon, the historian who writes about the death of a civilization, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And what he blames it on is Christianity essentially. He sees a change of values. A cha the, and, he, and of course, he sees Christianity as being individualistic, pacific, indulgent, um, self-centered, rejecting a notion of military value. Well, it sounds pretty similar to uh, mm. where we are now. Um, and, 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 you know, societies can turn in on themselves. And clearly, uh, one, of the, one of the remarkable things about Rome is that having achieved this astonishing power and dominance through, and, you know, Roman civilization really is pretty horrible, but <laughs> it suddenly turns against itself. It turns into something radically different and falls. Well, we are confronted with a radical Islam on the one hand and a radical dif radically different vision uh, in China of a regulated state-controlled capitalism run not by uh, floppy uh, classicists like Boris Johnson, but by ruthless, properly trained engineers mm. in which the human being is seen merely as a cog in the wheel, not the creature like us, to be indulged in every whim, fantasy and hurt feeling. Yeah, not much indulgence <laughs> happening in China. <laughs> no, but, but again, you look, at, you look at how the thing was handled in China. Mm. And mm. It, you are just ordered what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And if you step out of line, how many years in jail is it, you know? Yeah, if, if that. But uh, this is the thing that you, you talk about the threats, you know, radical Islam, the, the rise of China with its very different mentality. And I think uh, threats have always existed and a strong, healthy civilization, like a strong, healthy body is able to deal with external challenges. The thing that troubles but me... But what if you decide, you see... Sorry. But this is my point. The okay. thing that troubles me is that if you, we weaken our own sense of ourselves, of, uh, of the value of our civilization. In fact, we've done more than weaken it. In fact, what is peculiar, and it's a very, it's striking. Uh, I think it, here again, England is, England, I'm going to talk about England. England has been the country that's led the way in virtually everything. We invented modernity in the late 17th century, the Industrial Revolution and all the rest of it. And one of the very peculiar features about England, which I think has become a kind of disease which has spread 
to the rest of the West is the self-hatred mm. of mm. the English intellectual. I mean, it's written about very, very interestingly by George Orwell. You'll remember there's like just immediately before, uh, well, on either side of the, the Second World War, in which there's that wonderful passage describing the kind of people who read the Guardian. You know, the sandal, <laughs> the sandal-wearing Quakerish classes, um, uh, veg- or invariably vegetarian or vegan, um, <laughs> as the kind of people who would rather steal from the poor box than stand to sing the national anthem. And that again, it goes back to the late nineteenth century. You've got in uh, the Mikado's one in, in Coco's song in the Mikado of all the people that he hated. It's those who it's it's those uh, who sing the praises of every century but this and every country but their own. And this has become profoundly deep-rooted in Anglo-Saxon culture. Uh, it was, I think, essentially snobbery. I mean, English food's utterly disgusting. You, know, you really, really must eat French. You know, the English have got absolutely, you, you give an example, of absolutely no sense of style or dress. You know. <laughs> <laughs> English, English men are just so ugly. You, please again, keep going, you, David, you, please. You again, you again this is the best you, moment you, of this you, episode. You, please, you, carry you, on. You, 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 you illustrate the point perfectly. <laughs> and, and so on. And then, of course, it becomes, given the extra crank and edge by race sensitivity. Um, And uh, so it now shifts from snobbery to something else, which is that we, of course, as imperialists, are responsible for absolutely all the ills in the world. Uh, And uh, then, of course, not only did we have an empire, we had slavery. And so every other culture in the world including China, did not have slavery. And in fact, the peculiar thing about the British Empire is that it may be built on slavery, but it then actually spends more money on eradicating than it ever made from it. And then, of course, the slavery, you can then turn across the Atlantic because until very recently, what was very striking about America was right or left, a passionate patriotism. But suddenly in America, with race politics and slavery, you're using these things to discredit even the American ideal, even the American Revolution, even the American Declaration of Independence, because of course the American Declaration of Independence, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that men are born free and equal with you know, certain uh, rights given by the divinity and whatever, by the creator, and you have slavery. Um, so there is indeed a fundamental hypocrisy, and you're using that, and the left is using that to devastating effect to lead to a rejection of your own civilization and to see it as being responsible for all the ill in the world, was the plain truth is that the West and capitalism, if you value health, if you value education, uh, if you value security of life, have created a civilization which offers incomparably more of these things to an incomparably larger percentage of the population than has ever ever been the case before. But then, do you know what? We take it for granted. (laughs) And it's like a religion, because the way you talk about it, it's almost as if, by being English, we're born into original sin. That is a brilliant point. May I no one has <laughs> ever said that no, to Francis no, no, on this program no, ever no, before. No, that is a brilliant point. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, no, no, come on, this is a serious, <laughs> serious this is a proper, we're all being joshing, yeah. but it's a serious conversation. You see, I think one of the things we've got to understand is how so much of what we're talking about now is displaced religion. Mm, this is something else which is utterly fundamental. Uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton, awful fat, 
farting fascist. That's good. <laughs> fat farting. Like <laughs> fat farting fascist uh, uh, and Roman Catholic. That he was, br but brilliant, brilliant writer and very considerable poet has this wonderful phrase about what happens when people lose belief in God. And the phrase is, you don't believe in nothing, you believe in anything. And what I think has happened is, in area after area, what were religious positions have been translated into political positions. I mean, one of the reasons why we were talking about Twitter, one of the reasons why Twitter is so horrible, of course, is that woke culture has now become a new orthodoxy. And the woke, you know, the wokerati, the Twitterati, enforce it just as though they were Dominican friars, you know, as, 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 as though they were Dominican uh, um, inquisitors. I mean, and, you know, if you actually look at when you get a Twitter basting, if those people could burn you they would mm -hmm. they would actually in other words that 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 we that far from a liberalization of culture we're enforcing a new orthodox is a religious word these are new articles of faith and and again i think that one of the reasons why um uh, wokery you don't find much wokery in france Women in France are desperately trying to get French men woke. They're having a real <laughs> uphill struggle. And I've noticed no wokery whatever in Italy. You know, Berlusconi doesn't seem to me uh, to have learned too many lessons from the at, from, you know, at Me Too and all the rest of it. Why is that? Because all of this liberalism that we are talking about now in England and America latches onto the back of of, of Puritanism and nonconformity, that immense self-righteousness, that belief that you are the elect, that belief that most of the rest of human beings are deplorable people. You know, it's the Salem witch trials. They've got to be whipped into line because they're fundamentally wicked. I mean, the left believes, doesn't it, that people with political opinions like mine are fundamentally wicked. We don't just disagree. We are morally wrong. And now these are religious positions. Are you seeing what I'm trying to no, get at? No, absolutely. And, 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 and I think, again, this is why, uh, why, as it were, the two cradles of Western civilization, um, uh, Britain and America, are undergoing the, the extent of the crisis that we are now. We invent Puritanism in this country. Thank God we export, mo <laughs> export most of them to America and the worst ones are Northern Ireland. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, so we've lost our Scottish, Welsh, Irish and American viewers. So for those of you who are still here, uh, how do you feel about Australia and French as well? How do you feel about Australia, David, before and New Zealand? Well, anyway, well they're of course undergoing exactly the same yes, thing they because are. they inherit, they're, they're part of us. Yes. You see, again, uh, and I love all these countries. I have a house in America. I uh, um, I adore New Zealand. I've never been to New Zealand, but I adore Australia. Um, again, it's because of the uniqueness and completely remarkable quality of the British Empire, which is after the catastrophe. Uh, remember, Britain has only ever had one defeat in the last 300 years, and that is the loss of the American colonies. The loss of the American colonies made everybody in Britain rethink, and the rethinking is led by the man who leads the reaction to the French Revolution, invents modern conservatism by Edmund Burke. And Burke argues that the way that the, 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 the reason that things went wrong in America was that we didn't recognize we the British, 
the king, uh, the uh, prime minister, didn't recognize the need that's built into being English, especially, which is a sense of self-government. Mm. The, the, the right going back to our Reformation, going back to Henry VIII's break with the Roman Church, the thing that's dinned into you or used to be dinned into you about being English was the right to run your own affairs. Mm. And of course, if you send a colony overseas, um, of people who believe in their right to run their own affairs, by the time that you've, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> coronavirus, by the time, <laughs> 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 um, which we now all have. <laughs> 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 uh, 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 would you like to drink? Um, <laughs> by, 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 by the time you've got to the 1770s, and you've got a city like Philadelphia, which is about to overtake Dublin in size, which at that point is the second city of empire. And of course, they want to run their own affairs. Mm. And you get London trying to run it for them. So from that point onwards, and you see it particularly uh, in, uh, with the Durham report in Canada, the British government comes up with this astonishing notion, which is unique in the history of empire, that we should see all of these former colonies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the white ones, um, <laughs> moving towards self-government. And the empire consciously fosters increasing self-government. And so we are, you know, the British Empire is unique in spawning this series of mirror states, not the kind of fragments that are torn to pieces of the Roman Empire or has happened after, you know, the, the fall of the Soviet Empire or the Tsarist Empire, but these these consciously replicating elements. So, and have you ever been to Ottawa? No, I've never been. Ottawa is totally fascinating. You look at the Canadian Parliament building. What architectural style is it in this you know is in this new world it's gothic it's it's a gothic fantasy um and because the the the, the original one of the 1860s burnt out um it's actually rebuilt in gothic after the first world war because it's saying we are part of this same world this it's very difficult to believe with with mr trudeau but but, <laughs> you know, that, but really it is part of this anglo-saxon world and Looking at the way our society, which of course is then curses, sorry, yeah, yeah, no, you, just to connect and then we'll stop. Yeah. Which then again means that we see the virus of Puritanism and we see the virus of woke in it. So alongside the good bits, there are the bad bits. Which is why, as I said, wokery is essentially Anglo-Saxon. It's Australia, it's New Zealand, it's Canada, supremely Canada, America. <laughs> and being a historian, you can see and identify patterns. For, looking at the past and seeing the patterns in the present. Have we reached the end or do we have somewhere to go? And is the destination particularly unpleasant? No historian. And any historian, you've got to be Neil Ferguson to pretend to do that kind, <laughs> whom I deeply adore, and, but I'm not paid enough to, to take those kind of risks. Um, uh, the, we don't know. Um, People thought they did. I mean, if you remember, uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was one of the most famous and silliest essays of all time. The end of history. By, by Francis Fukuyama, taking his title from Hegel, the end of history, the triumph of the West, the triumph of liberal capitalism, uh, you know, the, 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 the liberal values on the one hand and the capitalist system on the other, hand in hand, a social and economic freedom would march into a, you know, into, into one of those 
figures, what, a bit like Russian realist art, you know, all of these heroic figures against the rising sun. Well, it didn't quite turn out like that. Mm. Today. No. So how do we know? But I do think we should have learned one thing from the collapse of that dream, from the rise of, of, of radical Islam, from the rise of China, and so on. Uh, we should remember vulnerability. And um, again, we've been able to behave in the absurd fashions that we are behaving now, simply because our world, it seems so knowable, it seems so manageable, it seems so controllable, it seems so safe. And one of the things that I hope is now happening uh, in this 20th century in, in which you know, every five years it's as though another time bomb, another bomb goes off, blowing apart this certainty that we will become a little more aware of vulnerability. But again, maybe this is just me getting old. No, I don't think it is. Um, I, I, no, no, I'm being really. I'm not saying you're not getting old. I'm uh, saying I don't think it's just that. <laughs> that is too obvious, isn't it? There goes a chance of a second interview. Yeah. Uh, well, we all are. But but my point is that um, I think what's happening now with the coronavirus, and I understand that you don't think. You know, I think. No, I've just raised a question. Yes. Okay. I've just raised a question. But my point yeah. is, I think we are starting to become aware that this illusion of permanent safety, of permanent stability. This is a point I've been trying to make to people for a long time. If you want to remake society from the ground up, you've got to remember it's going to be different. You're not going to be able to keep all those things that you like and keep them and take them for granted. Society will be different. And I think one of the things that people are becoming aware of just a little bit with the coronavirus is this forced stability and this forced security is only for, is only fake, it's only temporary, it's only impermanent. One, again, that wonderful phrase describing the French nobility in the years before uh, the revolution, that they were walking on an abyss strewn with flowers. Yeah. Wow. Now, isn't that rather, rather great? Um, yes, um, but you see, in other areas, I think we are engaged in what I would call diversionary panic. I mean, I think much environmentalism, what I'm afraid in my course of moments I call eco-wank, um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, of, of which you know, the great purveyors like David Attenborough and Greta and whatever, um, uh, is, is um, this again is the false end of the world. But you see again, it's religious. Yes. Um, uh, the, 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 that essentially, I mean, you look at the figures involved. I mean, David Attenborough is manifestly a, a kind of New Testament prophet, you know, white strewn hair, bringing down holy tablets from <laughs> on high, he's a new Moses. And greater, well, she's just a mad child saint. The Middle Ages was filled with mad child saints. But, but that again, the end of the world, you see, it's a new form. It's a new form. It's a new Christian heresy. Yes. It's a belief that we're being punished for wickedness the wickedness of leading comfortable lives, yes. um, that, again, it's the belief that man is sinning against nature. You turn nature into a god. It's another, in this case now, we're reverting to medieval pantheism or pagan nature worship or whatever. It's all, the, all these things, are utter, I mean, that sort of thing seems to me to be just utterly absurd. Um, and at the same time, the much more real threats are being ignored. Uh, it's also that that all sorts of academic disciplines I don't think have caught up or they're part of the problem. I think history has become very much part of the problem that um, 
the kind of discussion that I'm having with you now would be regarded with absolute horror by 99% of my historical colleagues. Uh, if you actually look at what goes on in university history departments now, it is more and more minute little analyses of little tiny problems on the one hand, or on the other hand, engaging with fashionable theories about identity, representation, feminism, or whatever. Um, uh, it, has, it absolutely refuses to use what should be the profound knowledge of these people of earlier societies to address the problems of our own. Um, and again, okay, nobody really expects normally, though we always used to, we always used to think that being uh, studying history was the best possible preparation uh, for uh, uh, running politics. I mean, if you, if you think of the, again, looking at bigger patterns, the enormous transformation of the West, this 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 revolution that uh, in which if if you go back to a particular moment of time from which in virtually every way the world gets better, we know more, we understand more, the sciences, the arts develop. It is of course what we call the Renaissance, and what that was, it was a historical movement which consciously looked back to the last great, the previous great civilization, that of Rome and Greece, and tried to learn the lessons from it and apply them to its own time. And, uh, and because it coincided with the technological revolution of printing, it succeeded and, and did something astonishingly remarkable. But if we look at more what we would now regard as more, and by the way, just taking that point up about history, if you look at the, the great political leaders of the 16th century and, and the great administrators, people like William Sissel in this country, they self-consciously see the training that they've received in the classics as fundamental to what they're doing with their contemporary politics, which may give us a bit of ground with hope with Boris, because, you know, I'd be semi-serious. He's a good classicist, um, though he didn't get a first. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> and he's never forgiven for the world for the fact that his contemporary David Cameron did. But you see, if we shift ground to a subject where we actually look and treat with seriousness as running the world, economics, modern economics has stopped working. Why has it stopped working? I discuss this with my economics friends, but they... I, you know, I used to be at LSE, they don't seem quite to have caught on yet. Economics has stopped working because economics, if you think, why was it called the dismal science in the 19th century when it's largely invented? Because it was all about managing scarcity. But things aren't scarce anymore. Except toilet paper. <laughs> Except toilet paper. But, you know, money ain't scarce, which is why we yes. can find the odd trillion, you know. Yes. Isn't it wonderful, you know, yes. the odd trillion or so in the back drawer. In other words, once, once you, we're in a world in which there's too much capital, hence interest rates of a quarter. Or if indeed, if you're in continental Europe, negative interest rates. So banks charge you to deposit money. They don't pay you for it. They charge you for doing it. And the moment then you're in a world of superfluity, it's as though economics has gone through the looking glass. You know, I mean, and it's no accident, by the way, that the man who writes Alice in Wonderland is a very important mathematician, um, uh, Charles Lutfid uh, Dodgson, whatever, um, and uh, Louis, otherwise known as Lewis Carroll. But he can imagine that world in which you sort of reverse values. Mm. I don't think we've yet realized that that's what we've done. The astonishing successes of modern capitalism 
um, uh, create a world in which all sorts of rules just don't work anymore. Uh, but we haven't yet had a Maynard Keynes. We haven't yet had that or Einstein, those extraordinary figures. And what I think is most striking is we are in this age of, I think, a concentration of greater change, probably than for centuries. And normally those periods do produce extraordinary figures. You know, you look at the clusters of talent in Italy in the Renaissance or something like that. I don't feel we have that at the moment. I don't feel there's anybody appreciating, understanding, explaining what's going on. I don't see a figure, as it were, grasping the changes in economy, international relations. Have you not been following the Labour leadership election? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, to me to say, yeah. Oh, Ms. Long Bailey, you know, yeah, the, the, the uh, Louisa Nandy, yes. I mean, these, it really Keith Starmer, I mean, these figures of, I mean, either silly, I mean, how, how do you find somebody as boring as Starmer? I mean, just, I mean, the sheer <laughs> yeah, it's not quite the assembly of great thinkers that you might otherwise hope for. But one one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, David, uh, is we, we, we've we've discussed the work, we've discussed the left, but on the right, there seems to be this craving, not just in the US, but right across the world, for the strong man, the powerful man, the you know the populist leader. Why has that suddenly arisen in us? Do you think that desire for that? Well, well for all the, re all the reasons we've been talking about, yeah. um, if you get a dissolution of certainty, um, I mean, we, I think we're sort of programmed. I mean, remember, if I go back um, to my original hi historical work, um, it's on royal courts, it's on monarchy. The reason that I've been a rebel, uh, remember, I'm talking about 1960s. Uh, when I was a young man about to do research at Cambridge, we all knew what you had to study. You had to study the working class or the Labour Party or leftish movements. And what does Starkey do? He comes along and says, I believe that the only thing that really matters is aristocracy and monarchy. And you can <laughs> see, you can look at the expressions on my teachers' faces. Um, and I still believe that. I think that societies are run from the top, not the bottom. All that happens is you create new aristocracies. Russia is a very, very China. These are very interesting examples of this phenomenon. Um, and that essentially we are, we are normally led by bosses. Where we, we human beings have a monarchical instinct. We may disapprove of it, but it's there. And you know, companies. School. We evolved to live in hierarchies. We, we can't well, get away we, from we, it. But it's not simply hierarchy. There's a boss figure mm. that nearly always. And and it, what you, what you what you're looking at is ways in which that boss figure is informed, controlled, chosen. Um, the media through which he, it's usually he, or even worse when it's kind of, you know, a great she-elephant like like Margaret Thatcher, um, happily not Theresa May. Um, 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 uh, but again, you see, Theresa May illustrates what happens when the boss figure goes wrong, um, when you have somebody who doesn't have this ability to command. Again, with all our caring, sharing, lovey-dovey, oh, you mustn't order people around. Oh, no, you mustn't tell people what to do. Oh, you're bullying. You're, you're <laughs> bullying. Um, you, 
human beings need occasionally a kick up the ass. Very often they need it very frequently. Some people enjoy it, of course. <laughs> that's, that's another I love the way David looked at you when he said that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I'm not sure I necessarily see it as a problem. I mean, I think that, that again, the horrors of uh, the, what some people would claim is the last episode of this, uh, of the interwar period, again, that great period of instability um, in, 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 in Europe, um, which, of course, you know, produces the horrors of, uh, horrors of Hitler and Stalin and, and Mussolini and whatever. But People, I think, leap to and, and make abs absurd comparisons. I don't think Trump in America, and I don't certainly think that Boris Johnson here, are remotely of that order. They share some similarities with it. But what is striking in Britain is exactly as happened in the Second World, uh, in, in the earlier 20th century. Um, in Britain, the center has held the two broad political parties, even despite the catastrophe of the management of the Labour, they hold together. And the result of that is, of course, they include the extremes, which are defanged. The, again, people constantly, you know, the, the, the left, you know, denounce the wickedness of first past the post, the wickedness of the traditional British constitution. But it stops the development of extremist parties. And, um, uh, and you know, the, the, uh, you look at the complete failure uh, of, of, of UKIP to do anything. OK, it coloured some aspects of Tory policy. But you can see how the fangs are drawn, whereas the great risk, you know, in Germany... Um, is that, uh, and I think it's a profound risk in Germany, uh, when you've had a politics which has been dom dominated by the equivalent of a Tory Labour coalition. Of course, the extremes benefit because people get fed up, uh, particularly when it's managed by somebody with as you know, few political talents as I think Angela Merkel is turning out to have. So I'm, I, I, I think that we should be looking much more at the reality and nature of political constitutions. And here it seems to me, and I could be, you know, just revealing my limitations as essentially an English historian, we benefit from this extraordinary constitutional stability. 800 years. It's utterly unique. Okay, the Japanese Empire is longer, but the constitution of the Japanese Empire ain't continuous. Ours is a broadly continuous constitution. Um, save for that brief episode of the 17th century, it has managed to control and contain this and we have the country at the same time that has modernized most and changed most. And yet we've managed to have a political structure which has contained it and held it together. Um, if there's a historical lesson to be learned, I think that's it. And you mentioned the, the Renaissance, which I think is an important question here because I feel like very often when we have these conversations with people like yourself, <clears throat> there's a temptation to kind of go doom and gloom. The, the, we, this is the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. We're living through the last days. Uh, but it sounds like what you're saying, we have the, the capacity to recover from this 
what might be a temporary malaise of a lack of self-confidence, self-hatred, which you've it talked about. It would be nice to think so. It would be, yeah. It would be nice to think so. But again, you see, I think the <clears throat> the comparison with the Roman Empire is utterly false. I mean, it it has, uh, it's, you know, it's nice and flashy mm. uh, and is easy to play with. Um, but remember, the reason the Roman Empire, well, the reason the empire is created, the reason the Republic falls, is the intervention of the army. Now, what is striking I mean, the Roman Empire is really the army taking over the state and, and the boss of the army, uh, you know, Caesar uh, and then Augustus taking over the state. There is absolutely no sign of this in the West at all. Are, are not even in America, where you have this gigantic military complex, the generals, not even with Trump, show any sign of wishing to do that. We have constitutional processes. And I think, I think, they, are, I think they are profoundly important. Um, the... My anxiety uh, at the moment in the West is this, it is the obverse of, 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 of the Renaissance. The Renaissance was that moment of astonishing um, intellectual confidence, of course, torment also, but and again, one that was prepared consciously to draw upon the past to transform the future. It's at a very early point. Um, it's phrased wonderfully by Geoffrey Chaucer, who has this line, um, um, old books from which new learning springs. This wonder wonderful notion of the connection between old and new. And for me, it's that loss of that fructifying, fertile quality of history. The, as it were, you have on the one hand, the mere conservator, the kind of old-fashioned national trust, keep it all in aspic, which separates history uh, from the present in that direction. And on the other, the neologist, the people who only believe that's new. What, what you need in a healthy culture is that dialogue Mm. of the two. the di If you like, the impossible figure of the person who's both a liberal and a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the real worry is that we're losing that ability to have dialogue. Oh, well, we've certainly, I mean, how well you put it. I mean, the, 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 moment, that, the moment that you get the, the sort of Twitter style, or indeed, increasingly, general political discourse, but enormously, enormously accelerated by the web. And I, I think that, that one of the great problems is the uh, way in which the web has distorted, the, the web and social media have distorted uh, the very notion of conversation um, and the very notion, again, of... Uh, a proper conversation in which there will be different people with different values. Mm. Um, I mean, I have no idea what either of you two thought. You had more idea of what I thought. Um, but each one of us has been coming into this uh, uh, with bringing what 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 he has. Um, uh, neither of us has shouted at the other. Neither of us has got indignant. Nobody has denounced. Um, and... This is the model. This is what I always believed in passionately when I was teaching. I believe it's what universities should be. I believe there should be no authorities. Um, and there are experts, but experts aren't always right. Experts are only justified by evidence. And the, 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 what we need is it's this dialogue of civility that we are having. It's this willingness to learn, to engage, to tease. We've been teasing mm. the importance of humor, the importance of the smile, 
the realization that the most important issues are often illuminated by that. And the awful side-taking, the polarization, the shouting, the screaming. And do you see... Do, so are we really saying we just need a recovery of good manners? I mean, maybe... But I think the religious... Sorry, just on this point, I think that one of the reasons that... And again, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, one of the reasons that we have become so shouty and so attached to our own sides is there is a re religiosity it, to our politics religious, now. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. And yeah. therefore, when, when I disagree with you, I am not disagreeing no. with Dr. David Starkey. I am disagreeing with... I'm blaspheming. I'm well, blaspheming. Uh, of course, that's right. I mean, it, it is, again, it's, it's, it's why particularly the politics of the left. And isn't it interesting? The politics of the left, with the increasing fragmentation, of course, replicate precisely what happened to Protestantism. You know, that, that it splits into smaller and smaller and smaller groups, all of whom you like, like the People's Front of Judea and the Judean yeah, People's Front, yeah, yeah. all of whom hate each other, and you get this immense vanity of, of small difference. It, it, the one thing that I think, to use a metaphor, is a canary in the mine is humour. And when you see humour start to be attacked... That is so unfunny. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 people like Marcus Brigstock. Yeah. Why does anybody think that people like that are funny? <laughs> why, or even I think most of Ben Elton, why is putting fuck and Margaret Thatcher into the same sentence something that we've got to laugh about? I mean, it is just... It, there is no wit, there is no lightness, there's no fertility. But, but do you think this, this, this mania that we seem to have descended into for taking a joke and then taking it literally and then using that to attack people is a sign of a problem within our culture that we have lost the sense of lightness, the sense to laugh at ourselves, to ridicule ourselves and ultimately to admit that we're human and... Yeah. I mean that I, mean, I don't think we've I don't think I don't think it's been generally lost. I mean, you listen to the banter on a bus mm. or in a pub, it's what it's always been. But we have we have enabled the creation of a public discourse of offense, of victimhood, and so on. Um, we, you cannot have a culture uh, in which, you know, again, Voltaire, in which, oh, my feelings have been. Mm. You know, we don't have a duty to respect each other's feelings in that sense. We have a duty, uh, clearly, uh, to an extent, to care and look after each other. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that every sort of degree of snowflake fragility has got to be recognized. Um, uh, there needs to be a, a, a robustness, but equally, I suppose it's a question of a mutual confidence. Um, I, I've, it is, I think it is essentially the cult of victimhood, um, uh, which is so... I think this is where things have gone so appallingly wrong. Uh, and again, the deification of language... Um, that, uh, you know, the whole business of what it, what is the appropriate word to describe somebody who is black. And you actually look at the, the sheer sensitivity of that issue. I mean, for some people, calling someone black is, is almost akin to calling the N-word. Mm -hmm. For other people, in fact, it's out and proud and that's what I am. Mm -hmm. um, but this, this is, this is, this is, these are like the worst disputes of medieval schoolmen. It's the fetish, it's fetishism. It's a fetishism of language. Language. And if you, you fetishize language in this kind of way, you can't have humor. Um, you can't even really use words. We, we actually, st we really do stop talking to each other. 
Um, well, you don't know what the right thing is to say. I mean, the the, the difference between a person of color, color and a colored person. Oh, 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 the M, the new, the C word. Right. <laughs> well, 20 years ago, uh, I mean, I remember one of, uh, I used to run a comedy club mm -hmm. and uh, I had an act on who was black and a, an audience member came up to me afterwards and he was so happy about having seen this act and said, I don't, I don't remember his name, the colored chap. And clearly to this person, th this term was just a, a term that they yeah. were used to using. But my point is, there was absolutely no malintent course, yeah, in no. that statement whatsoever. And yet, if you had taken that conversation, recorded it, and then played it on 9am BBC morning breakfast show. The complaints would have fallen like right. the rain from heaven. <laughs> and this is, they'd, they'd have fallen like storm, whatever it was, yeah. wouldn't they? Yes, and yes. this is where this distinction between ill intent and prejudice and bigotry and simply using, failing to use the current... The fashionable term. Exactly. Mm. But as I said, I think this is fetishism of language. Mm. And it, you know, the, the, the last time you could see this kind of thing, and again, it's wonderfully satirized uh, by, um, uh, by Gibbon in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, when uh, Byzantium was torn apart by the dispute between homo usion and homo e usion, um, which are... You know, different views of the deity. Um, and, and again, it's this fetishization of language. I mean, quite literally, uh, the, the city, Constantinople, was half burned down in the riots on this subject. And um, what we do about it, I don't know. Again, you see, there was a prophet in all of this, and we're not allowed to talk about him, and that's Enoch Powell. And Enoch Powell, uh, in his wicked speech, you know, the one that is always denounced um, uh, reacting to the Race Relations Act, pointed out virtually everything that we are now saying, that the moment you started entrenching this you know, notion of, as it were, a protected species, then it will become an instrument of power. He doesn't talk about, he talks about language to an extent, but not enough. And I think that we are, if we are to recover, and you know, the, 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 the fate of Trevor Phillips, mm. the man who in a sense started all of this, who was the, the most successful president of uh, whatever used to be called the race relations thing that became um, uh, equal, whatever, um, um, uh, that he should now, as it were, be pilloried for heresy. It's rather like the Middle Ages where, you know, a pope is finally accused of heresy. We have to realize surely that that is the moment at which we stop. And if we don't, I mean, shoot, I mean think about it. This is, this is the... Um, <coughs> Again, forgive me. Um, the attack on Trevor Phillips um, seems to me to be the moment at which the revolution wants to guillotine Robespierre. Mm. And the French at least had the good sense to pause at that point. We, we the left, the guardianista, if they cannot understand that, well, then certainly they are lost. Perhaps the rest of us needn't follow them. On that note, David, we've got time for one final question for you. Which is always, what's the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? I'm going to repeat what I've said because I think it is what is really important. The importance of the past, 
not as something to be fetishized, not as something to be national trustized, not as something to be sentimentalized or novelized like Hilary Mantel, but as something that we genuinely try to understand, to enjoy, to confront, to use. And the, I think the wisest figure in English politics and English political history um, is Edmund Burke. And the central lesson of Burke is that society is a profoundly organic thing. He talks about it as being a contract. Well, that's the common commonplace term of, of the social contract. But he formulates it in an extraordinary way that it's a contract of past, present, and future. And our absurd, this momentism mm. breaks that contract. And that is precisely why it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, because as I said to you before we started, uh, we're both incredibly jealous of someone who understands history because it gives so many, so many perspectives about what's happening now and what may yet come. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on the show, David. Uh, thank you for watching and we'll see you again in a week's time with another brilliant episode. Take care. See you next week, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.